closer look at the Cuomo controversy. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Jarrett, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Spring uh, spring is here. Spring is springing. We'll take it. Hopefully, uh, we're just continuing on this way. I feel like uh, I've noticed uh, maybe this is just social media or something, but, you know, people are uh, in a little bit of a better mood and peop- uh, there's a lot of excitement about the weather turning. It's been a tough COVID winter and uh, people are ready for, for springtime. So. Well, totally. I mean, I think spring always has that rejuvenative effect, but especially this year, it has felt like felt like a 12-month winter and the possibility that slowly but surely and hopefully carefully, life will start getting back to normal and people can start to socialize and see one on each other once they're uh, fully vaccinated and adhere to all the latest CDC guidelines about how to behave once you do have your shots. Uh, yeah, things might be things might be looking up. Yeah, you know, it's uh, the vaccinations proceeding, the weather's changing, um, you know, there's still a lot of concerning things going on, but um, in terms of other other progress, this massive federal aid bill and stimulus bill is happening. So that's been big news as it achieved its final congressional passage today, just shortly before we're coming on air here. And uh, President Biden's expected to sign it on Friday, I saw. So an immense amount of aid coming to New York and other states as well. But um, that goes right along with these other other turning points and positive signs. Maybe the biggest yeah. one of all is that is all the the aid that's going to flow into New York to to families, to individuals, to people who've lost work, to people who need to pay back rent, to uh, small businesses, city and state government. Um, there's just so so much in this in this bill, and. Uh, you know, pretty much broad consensus in New York, at least uh, across even, you know, political uh, philosophies and, and backgrounds, you know, big business groups hailing it, uh, even some, you know, more moderate conservative type think tanks think it's a pretty good idea. So a lot of praise for this big package that uh, that Chuck Schumer of New York helped helped orchestrate as well. Yes, and obviously, you know, the bill does not have everything that many progressives wanted in terms of minimum wage and several other provisions, uh, but it's hard to have $1.9 trillion flowing into the economy and it not be a big deal. And it will certainly flow into the budget discussion in New York State, which is winding very quickly toward its April 1st deadline. Uh, you know, the gap that Governor Cuomo identified a few months back has substantially been closed. It's not been closed all the way by that aid, but it certainly has helped a lot. And that will in turn feed into the city's budget discussion. And of course, Andrew Cuomo goes into the height now or the, the fever pitch of the budget season in the most significant controversy of his career. It's something we focused on last time, and we're going to focus on it again. We'll have in just a few minutes, Bill Hammond, who is a senior fellow for health policy at the Empire Center and was an early critic of Governor's handling of nursing homes during the pandemic. So he'll be on with us to talk about that element of the controversy surrounding the governor and dig in deep to exactly what that controversy is about. And then after that, it looks like we'll have a chance to discuss some of the many campaign uh, and related headlines that have been breaking this week as we head into spring. It also means we're heading toward that June 22nd primary. So so a lot to talk uh, about there. Indeed. And, you know, in terms of talking with Bill Hammond of the Empire Center, if folks listening are not familiar with his work, you know, he's really been at the forefront of pushing ahead on getting more transparency in terms of the Cuomo administration's handling of COVID-19 and nursing home and nursing home residents and this swirling controversy around whether the Cuomo administration uh, was purposefully hiding the true death toll of nursing home residents um, because they did not want to look bad because they did not want fingers pointing at them in terms of a State Department of Health memo that went out to nursing homes uh, back in the spring that told them they needed to take patients as long as they could care for them, even if they had a positive COVID diagnosis, uh, and a lot of things that have unfolded since then. So Bill will come on soon to talk about the work he's done exposing that, which has included lawsuits and freedom of information law requests and, and a, a variety of analyses. And that's one of several crises that are all connected in some way. They're part of a continuum that are swirling around the governor 
The other big one is, of course, the sexual harassment, sexual misconduct uh, scandal that has embroiled the governor. We're now up to six different women who've alleged inappropriate comments or inappropriate contact by the governor, uh, five of them former aides. And the governor has uh, said a combination of, of excuses and apologies that we'll dig into maybe later in the show. But that controversy is um, it has in some ways eclipsed the nursing home uh, scandal, but they're both swirling around the governor as well as sort of the through line of this larger picture of of the Cuomo culture, how the governor has ruled uh, the state government and the state in many ways over the last 10 plus years as governor. And then he was attorney general for four years before that and in politics for decades before that, uh, really coming into more uh, of a of a fuller picture in terms of the, the Cuomo culture, although many have known for many years uh, how the governor operates, um, even if the sexual harassment allegations are all new. I'm very pleased to welcome to Max and Murphy, Bill Hammond. He is the senior fellow for health policy at the Empire Center. Before joining the Empire Center in 2016, Bill spent almost three decades in newspaper journalism, most recently as a columnist and editorial board member at the New York Daily News from 2005 to 2015. Bill, welcome back to WBAI. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So just to kind of get a fix on the number, because a lot of this has been about the number, do we now have a fix on a firm number of how many nursing home residents died of COVID-19 in their residence or the hospital? Do Do we now have that in hand? Well, we have a much better number. Um, this is, I mean, any any large-scale data gathering operation is going to have errors and holes in it. And this, this one is maybe particularly uh, problematic because of how it's developed over time. Because of the circumstances of a, of a pandemic, it was, the data set started in the crisis. There was a lot of uncertainty about who had COVID and who died from it. But um, the, the number's gotten a lot better in the last uh, month or month and a half. Um, and it's it's in the neighborhood of 15,000 all in, including um, people who died in the facilities, people who died out of the facilities after, say, going to a hospital. And so let's get back to sort of when this started to become a controversy here in New York State. And that is this, I believe it was March 25th directive from the Cuomo administration. What was it and what impact do you think it had? Well, so um, you turn your mind back to mid to late March and the briefings, a lot of what the governor was focused on. Um, with a lot of urgency and even some degree of panic, was running out of space in hospitals. He had projections indicating that the number of patients who were going to be sick enough with COVID to need a hospital bed was going to be much, much more than the total number of hospital beds in the whole state. Of course, this was concentrated in New York City. Uh, and a lot of those beds were in places like Buffalo and Rochester. They weren't going to be much help to a, a pandemic in New York City. So he was pushing the hospitals to create space in any way he could. They were they were setting up beds and cafeterias and things like that. He was he was scrounging for available buildings that could be used as temporary hospitals. He set up a temporary hospital with the help of the Army Corps at Javits. He uh, he arranged to have you know he he got the help of the president in bringing uh, a navy hospital ship. I mean you remember all of those things, right? Mm-hmm. And at some point during that process, the hospitals came to him and said, you know, there's a group of patients we have who they've recovered from coronavirus. Um, they're stable, and it's time for them to leave, but. They're not well enough. They're not. They're disabled. You know. They're. They're. They need a nursing home bed, and the nursing homes aren't taking them because they're. They still test positive for the virus, and and uh, and they're and they're afraid to take these patients. Uh, and this was brought to the attention of the governor's office, and within a few days, the health department issued an advisory saying, 
nursing homes, essentially saying nursing homes must take these patients, um, whether they're positive or not, and they, they should not be allowed to wait for a test result. They can't demand a test result before taking the patient. Um, we used pretty strong language. It was in the context of a, of a major emergency. The governor had just been given special emergency powers. The health department was exercising uh, emergency powers. And a lot of nursing homes took this as a, a direct order, a mandate that they had to comply with. Um, and over the next six weeks or so, we now know that 9,000 coronavirus positive patients were discharged from hospitals and sent to nursing homes. Not all of them, when I say coronavirus positive, some of them were, were probably suspected cases of coronavirus. They hadn't necessarily been tested. But 9,000 of these patients transferred. And I, I guess I would point out that um, not all of that happened in New York City where the crisis was, was most severe. Some of that happened in upstate hospitals that weren't having any kind of crowding problem at all. Um, and it also it continued to happen after the peak of the crisis in early April. The policy stayed in force until early May. And so there was about a month where it was pretty clear the hospitals were not going to be um, overwhelmed in the way it was feared. They were certainly, some of them were certainly under a lot of pressure, but they never ran out of beds. And this policy continued until May, even as the crisis abated, and it, and it happened in places where there wasn't especially a lot of pressure on hospitals. The impact is a little hard to know. There's been a lot of muddying the waters around this. And one reason we, we couldn't really gauge it is because the state was being really stingy with the data. It was giving out kind of a running total of how many nursing home residents had died uh, in each facility, but it was hard to track when they died um, and where precisely. With, with the success of the Empire's lawsuit in February, the state was finally reforced, forced to to give a, a more comprehensive data set, and that enabled us to do some number crunching. And we found what we thought was a, um, a statistically significant correlation between the, the positive patients who were sent into nursing homes and higher death rates in the nursing homes that received those patients. And of course, the governor's office controversially put out research, you know, fairly early in the summer, suggesting that it was not because of the mandate, not because of returning patients, but rather that, uh, according to them, that the timing of the spike in cases in nursing homes was really attributable more to uh, staff coming in and infecting those patients. And that that study has been uh, praised by some and certainly criticized by others. But one of the contentions the governor has made is that this March 25th directive, you know, that we're looking at it now in hindsight, but at the time that it was in line with the guidance from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that it was a CDC guideline that the state was entirely uh, in accordance with. Is that a legitimate defense? Um, I would say that the the governor has overstated his case in that area and the, and the commissioner. Um, there was CDC guidance. First of all, the CDC does not have legal authority to tell states or nursing homes precisely what to do. They're, they're an advisory agency by their very nature. Um, the, 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 the ultimate authority in this area often is the state. And sometimes local authority, local public health agencies have authority. In this case, the state had asserted, you know, it, it was superseding the local agencies. Um, and it had legislative authority. It had gubernatorial authority that went way beyond what the CDC's authority was. And the CDC's guidance, first of all, was more cautiously worded. It said nursing homes should do this and could do that. And in the context of, of saying that they, ought, they, they should take coronavirus patients as they normally would, it was careful to say 
uh, to add caveats, such as provided they're in a position to treat these patients with the care that they need, and provided that they're able to follow the infection protocols that are necessary to keep other patients in the facility safe. That, those caveats were not included in the state's memo. Uh, the state's memo used stronger language. Instead of should and could, it said must and shall. And those are generally used in the context of a mandate. And it did not reference the CDC guideline. It did not reference the, the, underlying, the, the, the separate rules and guidelines that usually indicate that you should only take patients when you're capable of handling them well and that you should only, um, that you should only take them if you had the infection protocols in place. I think the governor has has argued that those things were implicit, that you don't have to tell nursing homes when you issue an order like this, you don't have to remind them of the other laws that apply. Um, I'm not so sure that's entirely true in an emergency when the governor and his health department are telling you to do something and they don't remind you about these, the existence of these other laws. And they've, they've been asserting emergency power that overrides normal laws. Mm-hmm. I think nursing homes quite reasonably viewed this as something that they had to comply with whether they wanted to or not. Thinking back to those days, do you, do you think do you think there was was there an alternative to to doing this? I mean, I remember those press conferences in in late March, early April, when it did seem as though we really were on the verge of becoming overwhelmed. And obviously, they opened the the giant field hospitals in a few places. Uh, and at that point, it seemed like they might be entirely subscribed. What what could Cuomo have done other than command nursing homes to to take these patients back? Well, first of all, in hindsight, we know that he could have left the patients where they were in most cases. The hospitals did not become overwhelmed. to the extent. There were some hospitals that got quite full, and their staff were under a great deal of pressure, and, and you might even say they were overflowing. But to some extent, that was because there was poor coordination between hospitals. There were available beds in the New York City, in New York City itself and in the greater New York City area throughout the crisis. Um, but that's that's with the benefit of hindsight. Um, they had created emergency hospitals, and to a large extent, those temporary emergency hospitals, including Javits, um, sat largely empty. Um, now, here again, they were holding those spaces in anticipation of a huge wave and may not have wanted to, you know, if you're clearing people out of the hospital to make room for a wave, it doesn't necessarily make sense to put them in your standby hospital either. Um, so, so I guess I would agree with you that, you know, they, were, they did feel a great deal of pressure to, to create space in, in hospitals, and they were um, making a judgment that, it was more important to have available space in hospitals than it was to um, be super careful about putting people in the nursing homes. Um, I think if you had it to do over again, and I think you're seeing this now, the, the, the it looks seems to me that the consensus in this area is that you should have COVID-only facilities for nursing home patients. Um, some nursing homes did this on their own. Uh, either they set up a separate wing where people, infected patients could be isolated, um, or they, if it was a chain of nursing homes, they would identify one of their facilities to be COVID-only. That's not something every facility is in a position to do. Some places are quite small. Um, in order for that to work, you also need to isolate the staff. You need to, they call it cohorting. You have a cohort of staff who work with the positive patients, putting themselves at risk, by the way, but also reducing the risk that they're going to spread it to the uninfected patients because they don't, they don't go near the uninfected patients. You have separate staff who work with the uninfected patients. Um, that... That seems to me that that seems to be the best practice that's emerging from the nursing home world is to separate the patients and separate the staff. And of course, you also, in order to do it right, you need to use a lot of PPE because um, 
the, the staff could be picking up infections at home. And so even if, if, if they're in the cohort that's working with the uninfected residents, you need to, you need to still isolate the staff from the residents. Um, and there wasn't enough PPE at that time. And if, uh, from what I understand, nursing homes were a lower priority for getting the limited supplies of PPE than hospitals were. So it, w- it was an extremely difficult situation. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of the criticism is with the benefit of hindsight. However, I would point out that the hospitals had a say in that March 25th policy. It, it, it turns out it, it may have been their idea, in fact. The nursing homes did not get a say. They didn't even, from what they've testified publicly, they didn't even get a heads up that it was coming. Um, the first they heard about it was, was when they received the guidance from the health commissioner. Hmm. The, if the governor or the health department had consulted nursing homes, they would have told them in no uncertain terms, do not do this. This is a bad idea. People are going to die. Um, the reason I know that is because even at the time, in mid-March, an association of nursing home medical directors had put out a public statement warning states not to do things like this. It's not clear whether the whether the governor or the health department was aware of this statement, but hmm. this was there was strong opposition to this kind of thing in the nursing home world, and so if. If they had been consulted, they would have raised an objection, and maybe the policy would have been handled differently. One of the things that comes out in the Attorney General's report of late January, which, you know, this is a story that you had been uh, hammering on the door for months, and I think Tish James' report, uh, it's fair to say, kind of kicked the door open. Um, It indicated just the poor level of preparedness at many, many nursing homes, um, and and it seemed like a pretty you know d- deep inability to respond to COVID and some deep underlying problems in the quality of care. Is that something that the governor uh, knew about or or should have known about? And it, what explains the fact that they were so poorly equipped to respond to this? Well, in terms of what the governor's responsibility, he has been governor for a decade now. And the health department, you know, he, he's been in charge of the health department. The health department is in charge of inspecting and regulating nursing homes. The state also pays most of the nursing home costs through the Medicaid program. So the state has really ultimate responsibility over the quality of care in nursing homes. So if their quality of care wasn't up to snuff, I think the health department really should answer for why not. Um, the Some of the problems that the attorney general put her hand on were a byproduct of the pandemic itself, which, you know, the state was not prepared for the pandemic. The hospitals weren't prepared. The nursing homes weren't prepared. Like they have a lot of companies. in in not being prepared. The whole country wasn't prepared. And in particular, when it came to PPE, you know, everybody needed way more than the usual amount of PPE all at once, all over the country and even all over the world. And the manufacturers just couldn't come up, keep up. Uh, And it turns out a lot of them were in China. So that sort of complicated things further. Um, So that was a big problem. And then you had the kind of self-reinforcing cycle of you have some some nursing homes that are operating on l- relatively low staffing levels to begin with and then their staff start to get sick and it's really important if you're sick as a nursing home employee not to go to work and so suddenly a lot of their employees are calling in sick the nursing homes have even less staff than usual. Some of them call up these temporary agencies that will send them nurses and nurses' aides on a temporary basis. But those aides work in multiple homes, and so they there's a risk in a situation like this that they're going to carry the virus from one facility to the next. So you had this, this it, it did kind of spiral. And you can attribute some of that to the fact that quality standards were low going in. But I have to say, we at the Empire Center, now that we have more complete data, 
we we kind of revisited one of the findings in the attorney general's report. One thing she did was she compared the death rates in the homes to their um, federal rating for for staffing levels. And she found at the time she did her analysis that the lowest staffed nursing homes had tended to have higher death uh, counts. But she was working with limited data. She was working with, she didn't have the the numbers that the health department was withholding, which was, was residents who had died outside of the facilities. And her analysis cut off in mid-November when there was a whole second wave of, of coronavirus and coronavirus deaths still to happen in, in December and January. In total, she was looking, she was looking at about 6,000 deaths. Um, I'm sorry, she was looking at about 6,500 deaths. When, when, when we got the full database in February, it was, it was double that number. Um, so when you add in the additional data, the correlation with low staffing levels goes away. Um, the, they're, they're, the federal government uses a five-star rating system, and the group of homes that had the highest death rates were three-star homes. Three-star homes had higher death rates than two-star homes, and two-star homes had higher death rates than one-star homes. The lowest death rates of all was in the five-star homes, which kind of is what you would expect. You know, They had the highest quality and the most staff. But it's not clear that staffing in and of itself was a, a significant driver of the pandemic in nursing homes. Hey, Bill, do you have a few more minutes? Can we keep you a few extra minutes? Yeah, um, I, I'd, have, I'd be happy to talk. I want to go back to that July report you mentioned. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, so that, that report, I mean, it, it argued that the... Um, that that staff members were a major source of infections in nursing homes, and I think there's really not much question about that. Um, the staff were living in the community with the rest of us, and it turned out the virus was spreading much earlier than we realized it, and many of them got sick, and many of them didn't know they were infected and went to work. And that I think it's it's a pretty convincing case that they were one source of infections inadvertently and unwittingly. They didn't realize they were doing it. And it's also probably true that people, family members who were visiting were bringing the virus in again unwittingly. Mm-hmm. What where the report went wrong is when it it declared that the March 25th policy had, quote, no significant impact on coronavirus deaths. I'm not even sure what that means, what, how they measure significant. The implication was that it was a non-factor, and that's what the governor has said. It's what the health commissioner has said over and over again. And I don't think that their study really showed that. They didn't present evidence that it was a non-factor. They did present evidence that it was a relatively small factor, that there were other things at work. And so, again, the Empire Center did its own analysis, and we found a statistically significant correlation. They didn't do that kind of analysis in that July report, which is a little bit surprising because it's, it's a pretty obvious way of of addressing the question of what impact the March 25th policy had. If you were really curious to know what that, how that policy worked, this is one way of, of getting at that question that they didn't, if they did do it, they didn't include their results in the study. Mm-hmm. So I think that study was heavily politicized. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, I, I was shocked when I read that the governor's office had edited the policy and taken out certain facts. I was as shocked as anybody because, you know, just reading it in print, because there was something shocking about it. But I had a strong suspicion when I read the report the first time that that political people had been involved in in um, preparing it. Um, 
because the language of it and the conclusions it drew were not particularly scientific. Hmm. Well, that's interesting and, and certainly uh, problematic, if true. Um, Bill, we don't want to keep you too much longer than we had originally said, but I do want to ask you a couple more questions here. Um, and as much as there's more to say on what you just said, I, I want to get at a couple of things here. Um, you know, as folks listening can tell, and we can tell, you know, you're 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 very uh, fair. It seems in your analysis, you're you know sharing a lot of. Um, you know, understanding with the administration and and with nursing homes that you know there was so much that people didn't know back in the spring. Maybe there could have been more understanding, better warnings, et cetera. But people were flying blind in a lot of ways or underprepared in ways that had built up over years. Um, so when we when we get at the essence of some of this, there's there's clearly questions about the March order that you laid out about the language they used about whether they overreacted or reacted in the right ways to the possible, um, you know, uh, uh, failure of hospitals or oversaturation of hospitals with patients. But beyond that, the, is the essence here not the sort of cover up is worse than the action? I mean, the, the lack of transparency, the attempts to make the governor look better by, by withholding information, is that the kind of key piece of this that people really need to know about? And can you sort of lay out what the big takeaway is on that? Well, so there's a, there's a bunch to unpack here. The, 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 there was a cover-up in the sense that they, the health department was withholding data that the public was entitled to have. It had no good reason for withholding it. It withheld it for months. It withheld it in the face of questions from the media, from members of the legislature, um, and a FOIA request, at least one. Um, and in the meantime, the governor and the health commissioner were saying things about what the data meant making claims about how what it said about the state the state's effectiveness and, and the, the quality of care in nursing homes they were they were making it out that New York actually had some of the best protected nursing homes in the country and when they knew that that was based on limit, uh, uh, only a partial count and therefore was just very misleading and I would even say false and they they said other things along the way that were false as well and that's that's a that's pretty serious offense against the public's right to know and against public health good public health practice you you know the health department and the governor need to maintain their credibility and part of the way of doing that is being straight with the public and being honest um underneath it though it was, I would say, it was also kind of disproportionate. The, the 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 lengths that they went to cover up what happened are disproportionate to what it appears they were covering up. They were covering up. Um, it was a mistake. The March 25th policy was a mistake. It may have actually cost some lives. I think it probably did, but. It probably wasn't the worst mistake that they made during the pandemic. Um, it, you know, we've lost 40-something thousand residents of the state. Um, a lot of them were in nursing homes, but a lot of them didn't live in nursing homes. And there were many decisions made along the way that if we had them to do over again, and uh, so I guess probably the most obvious example is the timing of the shutdown. Um, the shutdown, uh, if the shutdown had been um, done a week earlier, it may have saved, I think Columbia did a study about this, it probably would have saved thousands of lives. Um, so there are, a, and, and part of the shame of this is that the, the cover-up and all of the wrongdoing associated with the cover-up is drawing a lot of attention, as it should. What's not getting sufficient attention is what went wrong in the early stages of the pandemic. What, what signals were missed, what decisions were delayed, what people were listened to or not listened to, what experts were involved. There are these systemic issues that go beyond 
um, blaming any one person or, uh, you know, beyond any criminal, possibly criminal charges that apparently the federal government is investigating. There are systemic issues that need to be addressed. We need to we need to improve the the transparency of state government. That's an important thing to do, and so you know, holding the governor accountable for for withholding data is important. But we need to get past that to a discussion of the pandemic itself, which I don't think we've really had yet. Um, I keep the analogy I draw is to a plane crash. When there's a plane crash, the National Transportation Safety Board goes in and picks apart every single piece of evidence it can find. It looks through the black box and gathers up all the debris from the crash. It looks at the burn patterns and, you know, it, it listens to the cockpit communications with the tower. It looks at, like, you know, what alcohol was consumed by the pilot, what his sleep patterns were. It goes through all of that, the, the repair records on the plane. It may find in the end that pilot error was part of the crash. But if it does, it doesn't just throw the pilot in jail. It tries to figure out what can we do to prevent the next crash? What can we do to prevent the next pilot from making this error? That's the kind of thinking I think we need around everything about the pandemic, not just not just nursing homes, but every single part of the pandemic. We need to And is that something is that something, Bill, where the legislature should create a commission? Yeah, I mean, somebody should create a commission. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm a little surprised that the legislature hasn't been more aggressive and proactive on this. They, they did hold a bunch of hearings over the summer. I, I testified at one of them. But they were looking – they were focused on the downstream effects of once the pandemic got going – how it affected hospitals, how it affected nursing homes, how it affected jobs and even libraries. They had a hearing on libraries. Um, What I want them to focus more on is the upstream part. The decisions that were made in March and even February and January and things that could have been done differently then. Well, that, and, and, and that gets at, you know, one of the through lines here, too, is that at the timing of the Department of Health report um, where, you know, they, they tried to absolve themselves of blame for the order. And, you know, all around that time, the governor was was starting to be set on writing his his book of, of his heroism narrative. And whether it's in that book or in a number of other times where the governor's been asked about mistakes he's made, he really doesn't acknowledge any. And, you know, that gets at the root of the problem that we're discussing around transparency and, or, and around being willing to say we might have made a mistake with the order. You know, we were the, these are the reasons we were doing it, um, but we want to be forthright with all the data and we want to give people closure. And, you know, that's the other thing obviously at play here is also, you know, the families involved and, and there's so much, so many other, you know, human angles to it as well. Um, but, but, you know, the governor has continued to to really deflect any and all blame about decision making. Um, you know, the only things I've heard him say, at least, are that, you know, he wishes he had done a mask mandate a little earlier. Um, and, yeah. and you you got at the other, you know, one of the other big questions was this was this issue of when, you know, things should have been shut down, if it should have been sooner, which uh, which things point to that it, that it probably should have been. Um I mean, I think he I think he probably comes at that question from the point of view of nobody saw this coming. I mean, he sees he said that it was a surprise. We, you know, the whole mm-hmm. world was caught off guard by this. And to some extent, he's right. A lot of the world was caught off guard. But if you look carefully, there were places that were well prepared, not off guard, responded quickly, responded effectively, and kept both infections and deaths to uh, an absolute minimum. Um, One example I've recently come across is Hong Kong. They're you know they're part of China. They have lots of Chinese tourists going back and forth. Not tourists, but visitors. Um, they, you know, 
they had hardly any outbreak in Hong Kong. I think they're they have uh, their deaths are in less than 200, if I remember correctly. South Korea is another example. They moved very quickly to develop and deploy tests. They had a whole contract contact tracing regime set up. They used they kind of deployed social distancing in a strategic way. They uh, they had widespread use of masks and other precautions. Um, and they kept their outbreak to a tiny fraction mm-hmm. of what we had in the U.S. So, Bill, fi- final think, question for you. Should, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, final final question for you. In in terms of, you know, you mentioned federal investigators. We talk about, you know, the possibility of a large-scale commission to really look back and, and you know, look at the decisions that were made and what went wrong and what could have been different and, and really do that type of analysis. Um but in terms of the of, of any investigations here, especially related to the nursing home uh, saga and scandal, uh, or anything else, is is there one or two things you know that are really important for people to be watching for in the coming weeks and months um, on what you've been tracking so closely? Well, um, I want to see a great deal more transparency with the data. Even the data they put out, they don't put out in a user-friendly way. They don't put it out in a spreadsheet format, which has become increasingly common. New York City does, and New York State does not. There's a there's a group of, um, I think it's nine or ten uh, groups, including the Empire Center and other good government and watchdog groups, have put together an open letter uh, and listed... Uh, more than 100 databases, more more than 100 data sets that we'd like to see the state post online for the public to see. I think that would be an incredibly important gesture because it would get past all of the fighting over FOIL requests. And it would, even if the governor and the health department don't want to conduct an investigation, it would enable the public to do so. Um, Mm -hmm. And the public includes, you know, people with PhDs and epidemiology degrees who could go in and look at that data and And, figure out what it does. From what you can tell, is there is there any significant liability perhaps at play with what's being investigated? I'm I'm not quite sure. I understand where where those federal investigations could be could be going. I think there's a lot of people who are puzzled by that. I I can't pretend to know. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple sort of conceivable things you could point to. If, if you know the DOJ sent to state inquiries about. Um, data from nursing homes on a couple of occasions over the last year. If the state sent them something that wasn't accurate, if it was deliberately skewed somehow, that right. would be a big problem. Um, another scenario is uh, the New York Times drew attention to this. The the July report, which I think uh, you know they 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 reported that it was kind of phonied up by the governor's office. And then a few weeks later, the governor started negotiating a book deal that, you know, may have paid him personally a substantial amount of money. Um, if indeed it, it can be demonstrated that one reason the state was suppressing data about nursing homes was to improve the governor's prospects of getting a, a high-value book deal, that would be a pretty serious situation. I guess I don't know what exact crime that would be, but I can imagine um, the feds figuring out a way to, to make that case. All right. Well, we will continue um, to watch for what you're doing at the Empire Center and the other places that you write about with your thoughts and analysis. Um, And we really appreciate all the time here breaking all this down with us. Bill Hammond uh, is a senior fellow for health policy at the Empire Center. Thanks, Bill. Be well. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And Jarrett, we uh, we kept Bill longer than than we had booked him for, but he was generous with his time and obviously so helpful and knowledgeable. Um, you know, Bill's been uh, such a great 
watcher and, and commenter on uh, New York City and state for so long. Um, and now he's, you know, been focused on health policy at the Empire Center. And and that was before COVID. And, and what a time for him to be doing that. Uh, any any big thoughts coming out of that conversation? Well, I just think where you and he went in terms of, you know, the, the saying since Watergate has been it's not the cover. It's not the crime that gets you. It's the cover up. Um, in this case, we don't know that there's been a crime, but there was an underlying policy decision that looks in retrospect to have been not such a great idea. And, and apparently uh, some sort of cover up after that involving at least severe delays in releasing, releasing data and maybe some deliberate efforts to obfuscate it. Um, but they really are kind of of a piece. You know, it's 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 the idea that um, the Cuomo projected this kind of masterful control of the situation in covid and anything that might be a very human error in a very, very scary time without really any any real playbook for how to navigate it, at least one that was was specific to the situation that that had evolved in New York. Um, Rather than admitting that the idea that you have to um, kind of you know produce studies and and uh, block the release of information to maintain an, uh, a reputation for for perfection is is kind of uh, kind of insane and it's it's ironic because I feel like the reason why there was all this Cuomo love during March and April was not just that he had this command, but that he radiated a humanity in those press outings that the president was, at the president at the time, was incapable of doing. Um, and so I think I think that humanity would also have included the ability to admit an error um, at a time when, you know, a lot of people were making a lot of errors. Um, and it, it may have been a very grave one. It may be an unavoidable one. But... Um, but, you know, I think it's it's fascinating and kind of sad that if this is how it ends up uh, looking, that the governor was unable to to admit that, because I think, as Bill said, in the coming years, whether people like Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio and others want to admit it or not, people in a formal commission or in other arena are going to go back and find mistakes that were made and blame is going to be assigned, hopefully in context, um, whether they own up to it or not. Yeah, and I mean, in the absence of that, I almost mentioned this, but I was trying not to keep Bill too long. You know, in the absence of that, there have been some big journalistic dives. Uh, the Wall Street Journal did a great one. ProPublica did one. Uh, I believe the New Yorker did another. Some some of these comparing, you know, New York to other places, as Bill mentioned. Um, you know, so there's been some of that, certainly. You know, the, the, the issue over the governor not being willing to admit you know, any mistake or, or acknowledge, you know, data that, that doesn't look as good as he'd like, you know, is obviously ties into the larger picture, as I mentioned, of the handling of the pandemic in some. And then there's a very direct through line to many other instances in the, in this governor's tenure, including through this new sexual harassment scandal where, you know, he, he barely got himself to make an apology of sorts, but he's continued to, uh, sort of, acknowledge some inappropriate behavior, but plead ignorance that, you know, he knew it, it was at all uh, inappropriate and, you know, sort of uh, seemingly try to muddy the waters with talking about, you know, victims uh, misinterpreting things and all these other things rather than really taking on uh, blame for, for much of anything. And it's, you know, definitely a, a through line throughout uh, several crises, including the ones that are going on uh, right now. And I think I think also, I mean, if you one of the obviously a theme of the past seven years in general, but especially of the COVID crisis is the continuing tension between City Hall and Albany and the personages of Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo. And I think they both have this tendency. I mean, we, we are seeing now former health commissioner uh, Oxiris Barbeau coming out in a, I think it's an HBO documentary talking about BBC. The, uh, sorry, yes, thank you. Um, the mistakes that she believes that Mayor de Blasio made in the early days of the epidemic, not listening to advice from her, you know, um, kind of delaying the decision on when to shut the city down during those critical re weeks or days that Bill Hammond was referring to. You know, I think if if de Blasio and Cuomo were able to admit that there were some mistakes made, I think it actually would have the effect of making their, um, their successes stand out more. Now, Cuomo has received more credit up front 
front uh, too much for his reaction to COVID, his handling of it. Bill de Blasio tended to get a lot of uh, grief, much of it deserved. I think as the years go by, some of de Blasio's decisions on, on reopening schools and such might end up looking better. I think people would take a fairer look at his career uh, in general and his handling of COVID if he were to say, you know, yeah, I, I think in the beginning I, I moved too slowly and I regret that. But that seems something that both COVID, uh, both COVID, both Cuomo and de Blasio are, are kind of allergic to. And that's that's unfortunate because there are real lessons to be learned. And, you know, we, we like to think we will have several years to process them and to have a commission that will do so. But if we could get some of the investigating and admitting done up front, it would equip the next mayor who, you know, God forbid, but God knows we might face something akin to this in a couple of years. It'd be nice to have uh, some some edits already on what the playbook should be. Indeed. Well said. You know, I think um, just in our last minute here, uh, important to note for folks who maybe haven't been following the blow by blow that, you know, the state Senate majority leader has called for the governor to resign over the sexual harassment uh, allegations, but also what's happened around nursing homes and other issues. Um, but those two at the forefront and how the governor on, on the nursing home data and, and situation has withheld information from the public and from the legislature. Uh, meanwhile, the, the state assembly speaker sort of said he supported uh, the majority leader's call, but stopped short of saying he thought the governor should resign. And then we've had some pushback from a group of legislators saying, let the attorney general's uh, the attorney general led investigation where Tish James has appointed a couple of very experienced um, attorneys to lead that investigation into Governor Cuomo and the sexual harassment allegations. Let that take its course and then we'll see where things land, which is has become the governor's position after he was forced into sort of fully turning over uh, the the authority to the attorney general to lead the investigation. Um, so th- that's somewhat the state of play, along with what we discussed with Bill Hammond around, you know, some federal inquiries into the nursing home situation, which, uh, as Bill and I both said, we're not quite sure where that's going or what that's about. But um, there's a lot swirling around the governor, and we've broken down quite a bit of it last week and this week, and there will be more certainly to discuss going forward. I'm Jared Murphy. He's Ben Max. Thanks very much for joining us. Have a great week in the greatest city in the world. 